You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Baltimore Police Commissioner Michael Harrison joins Washington Post Live to discuss the national rise in violent crime, the city's five-year plan to reduce violence, and the role of policing. Let's listen. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Tom Jackman, a reporter with the Washington Post. Uh, It's my pleasure to welcome Baltimore Police Commissioner Michael Harrison in our continuing conversations about the national rise in violent crimes, protecting public safety, and the role of policing. Thank you for joining us, Commissioner. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, Commissioner, violent crime is up across America, including Baltimore. We had decades of declining crime. It seemed like the shoot 'em up days of the 1980s were gone, and now here we are in a second straight year of homicides and aggravated assaults on a steady rise. I mean, what changed? Why is crime continuing to rise? And is there anything Baltimore is seeing that's different from the rest of the country? Well, I don't think Baltimore is any different from the rest of the country, and I think we're all experiencing, as you said, the same thing. Uh, there are a number of factors, so there's no one thing that's causing. Uh, violent crime to rise. But I think what I'm seeing here in Baltimore and what other chiefs tell me they're seeing is, uh, number one, we certainly are affected by COVID. We have a year, uh, 18 months, where courts were closed, no grand juries, uh, no indictments, uh, no prosecutions. And so those things are beginning to happen now, but were non-existent for a while. Uh, On top of that, even before that, you have laws that are changing. Uh, Maybe a lot of communities are becoming more liberal. And what what we used to enforce, we've had to make uh, management decisions to think about how we're going to enforce laws so that we can have more equitable and fair treatment and not create disparate communities. So you have that on the front end. You have a year of COVID. You have people who either don't believe that there are consequences or don't fear those consequences or a combination of both. And when you put all of that together, uh, with a, uh, a movement away from uh, enforcing minor offenses and only focusing on violent offenses with the year of COVID, I think you have people who are just, number one, out there committing crime to survive, but some people are out there uh, just committing crime because they don't fear the consequences or don't believe there are any consequences. And what we're seeing in Baltimore is somewhat drug-related, but let me be clear, it's not all drug-related. The majority of what we're seeing are people who are settling their conflicts with violence, with gun violence, and are enacting their violence against other people because of beef, some short term, some longstanding. Uh, And they have no or poor conflict resolution skills, and they're choosing to pick up a gun to solve their conflicts when they engage with this other person that they seem to have a beef or conflict with. So we're seeing more of that than we're seeing drug-related incidents. And just because a young person or a person is in a gang or in the drug trade doesn't mean that the, the act of violence they committed was actually drug related or gang related. So there's a distinction there. And I think that's what we're seeing here in Baltimore from, from my conversations with chiefs around the country, they're seeing much of that as well. Right, so boy, you talked uh, touched on a lot of things there. Uh, one of them you mentioned was not prosecuting low level crimes. State's attorney Marilyn Mosby unveiled her plan to stop prosecuting minor drug cases, prostitution, traffic and misdemeanor cases, and try to get social services folks involved more directly in crisis calls. 
You know, the thinking was this would enable the police to spend more time on serious crimes, uh, less on mental health calls and misdemeanors. And, and you told me back in March that you supported this. So have you seen any impact from this so far? Well, what we're seeing is crime, especially nonviolent and property crime, continues to decrease here in Baltimore, even as we ease the COVID restrictions, um, crime did not go up. And so while at this very moment, we're even year to date with murder and only up four incidents and non-fatal shootings, uh, that has come down over the past few months. In all the other categories, it continues to go down. What the X factor is COVID. You know, much of the, this happened after her policy decision at the beginning of COVID, the law didn't change it. It was just an internal policy decision at the state's attorney's office. What we noticed is that crime did not go up. It continued to go down, even though we had to make adjustments in our deployment strategies, how we engage, how we entered or not entered homes, how we made arrests. All of that, we had to make major adjustments to prevent ourselves from becoming infected with COVID or spreading it to other people. So that was a major concern. What we noticed, John, is that it didn't go down. It didn't go up, but rather it continued to go down. Uh, property crime, nonviolent crime continues to go down. So I think we have to study this in, in, a, in a time period that's not affected by COVID to really know uh, the criminological impact. Uh, your mayor, Brandon Scott, uh, unveiled a five-year violence reduction plan. Uh, can you walk us briefly through what that entails and, and your department's involvement in its formation? Absolutely. He unveiled this violence production uh, prevention plan recently uh, that's based on three pillars. Number one, the public health approach to violence, uh, which is encompasses the gun violence prevention, victim services, youth justice, community healing and trauma-informed practice, and focus on reentry. The second pillar is about community engagement and interagency collaboration with neighborhood engagement and capacity building, interagency coordination, building key partnerships and fostering relationships with the police department. The third pillar, pillar is about evaluation and accountability, uh, strategic key performance indicators, performance management, community perception and safety, police accountability, policy and research. Now, when you think about all of that together, it's a comprehensive multidisciplinary plan that includes the police department, especially in our group violence reduction strategy in the middle where we not only enforce the laws heavily against those who are shooting and committing murders, but offering them a pathway away from violent crime by bringing all of the necessary wraparound services and resources to them so that they can actually have an opportunity to have a, a life away from violent crime. But this is an all-encompassing, multidisciplinary, comprehensive, strategic plan to reduce violence in, in the city of Baltimore under the mayor's leadership. Certainly proud to be a part of it. One of the things that's in that plan and uh, is being used here in DC and elsewhere is inter violence interrupters. Uh, and what role does that play? And then I would also wanna ask you about, you've had two violence interrupters murdered. Uh, so, what are your thoughts on whether or not this, this is going to work? It, it, it has worked in many places. I've seen it work personally in New Orleans. Uh, it's, it's, it's something we use here now and will continue to use even in this new violence prevention plan. Uh, so it, it's, we have to have people with street credibility to be able to diffuse 
those conflicts you heard me talk about uh, moments earlier. And so it's very effective and it's, a, it's an application that we're going to continue to use even to scale up across the entire city. While we've had two members uh, who are violence interrupters shot and killed recently, you know, you know, our hearts and prayers and thoughts go out to them. But we want to make sure that not only can we keep them safe, but that we can use a program like this, which has been successful in so many cities in reducing their murder rates. Uh, by using this approach, this comprehensive approach, we want to make sure not only do we keep them safe, but we can defuse conflicts to protect other people who are at high risk of either being a victim of a shooting or murder or the perpetrator of a shooting or murder. When you introduce concepts like this, how long does it take to see results? I'm not saying we need results right now, but what in your eyes, as somebody who's been at this for a long time, you were the police chief in New Orleans and you worked in New Orleans for, I want to say, 28 years. Now you've been in Baltimore for two years. Uh, How long before things like this can show results? Well, I think we have to really do a deep dive and look at every single person we come in contact with. And as we as we offer services to to at risk individuals who either would be a shooter or a victim of a shooting, and we can offer them these wraparound services to put them on a path away from violent crime for every person we help who accepts our help. That's one less victim. That's one less perpetrator. And I think we begin to quantify that person by person as a person who didn't get shot or killed or who didn't commit a shooting or murder. And I think you begin to see small victories uh, within, you know, within that first year. But I think over time, and the mayor's plan is a comprehensive long-term plan, it's a five-year plan. I think over time, we'll see real reductions because we will have really affected a number of people who are at risk, who otherwise would have been a victim or a perpetrator. How has the debate over funding played out in Baltimore amidst the call from some activists for defunding the police uh, and the national violent crime wave and the costs associated with that? Mayor Scott, when he was on the city council, advocated cutting funding for the police. Uh, I think he succeeded in that. And now that he's mayor, uh, I believe that he's uh, inclined toward increasing funding toward the police. So what's going on? Well, this year we just ended our, our budget cycle. The budget cycle started uh, July 1st. And so we I did my budget presentation and there were no cuts this year. And so we advocated uh, for our budget to remain. And although there were some increases, there were fixed increases in health care, pension plans, uh, and things like that that I don't control, but we essentially picked up the same budget this year that we had last year. And so we are free to hire, we're free to recruit. We didn't lose any positions and there were no cuts to our budget this year. And so we were very pleased with that. Uh, and that and that's where we are right now. Uh, are you getting enough help from the federal government? Uh, are they doing, is the federal government doing enough to support cities, both in dealing with the immediate and root causes of this violent crime wave? DOJ has suggested upping its enforcement and prosecutions in Baltimore, maybe via Project Exile. Uh, do you guys need the feds to help? Is the state's attorney enough in terms of prosecuting? Uh, what resources can the federal government provide you that you're not getting now, if any? Well, let me tell you, we have a great relationship with all of our federal partners and our federal uh, elected delegation. 
Uh, we have a great relationship. We meet every single month in my office about ongoing cases, future criminal cases, and the collaborative effort between all of the federal agencies. The city, through the mayor, has asked for more help from the federal government to bring in more agents to be on the ground working cases in the city of Baltimore, more prosecutions, more analysts, uh, and more community engagement and funds to support community engagement and prevention, crime prevention, so and intervention. So we have asked for more help, um, and we believe we're going to get that help. But make no mistake about it, we have a great relationship, and we're very successful. Uh, I was at a press conference just yesterday with the U.S. Attorney with the strike force uh, set of indictments uh, that took down a major drug organization. And so that collaborative effort uh, produces a lot of results here in Baltimore. Even though we're asking for more help because we need it, uh, we think we have great relationships, and those relationships are the reason why we think they're going to say yes to the help. Uh, you've said earlier in commenting on the city's violence reduction plan, this is about breaking the cycle and culture of violence in our city rather than the sole reliance on using police deployment alone. Where do you think we need to rethink the role of policing? Well, certainly there's been conversation about what should police be doing? Uh, how do we reimagine policing? And I've been a part of uh, a couple of large scale partnerships where we did investigations and produced one report. We're about to produce another one with the National Police Foundation about reimagining policing, what police should be doing. Certainly, we all agree that police should have never taken on the role of dealing with mental illness or homelessness or addiction and calls like that. And we really should be focusing on what we joined the police department to do, to protect and serve and to make sure we can build relationships, prevent crime, apprehend people who commit that crime, especially violent crime, and then build those quality investigations for prosecution. And so we're now reimagining police departments and what policing is in our profession to make sure we're focusing on those things that are unique to policing and bringing in those who are better suited to handle other things that police were never meant to handle. We have been asked to be all things to all people. And because of that, now we're overwhelmed, overloaded, and doing way more than we should be doing when there are others who are better suited to handle it. And, you know, we're moving away from the warrior model to the guardian model. Now, it doesn't mean that there's never an opportunity for the warrior performance, because when people commit heinous, violent acts and commit crime, we absolutely have to pursue that and apprehend them and build quality cases. But it's about guardianship and it's about making sure we're giving equal fair treatment and policing services to everybody in every community and not policing differently in different communities. Well, so uh, you mentioned mental health stuff. Are you getting mental health people to scenes now? Are you seeing any difference in, in outcomes? Uh, where maybe you aren't arresting someone, instead you're diverting them. Is that working? Uh, I know it was only March that it was announced, but is it happening? Well, it, it, it's only March since it was announced. It's still in its infancy stages. I think it's too early to tell the impact, but we are deploying uh, professionals in the mental health profession to some calls that don't require police because there's no information or intelligence that violence exists or uh, the potential to use deadly weapons uh, is part of that call. And so, yes, we are now doing that. We hope to scale that up 
across the entire city uh, on all shifts. You know, that's in the future and that's to come, but we are doing it. I just think it's too early to tell what the impact is because it's still very in its infancy stages. I don't know if that helps you in terms of trying to earn and regain public trust in Baltimore and everywhere in policing amidst the backdrop of the repeated deaths of you know, unarmed black men at the hands of law enforcement, from Freddie Gray to George Floyd. After George Floyd, you said, the death of George Floyd has shaken America to its core. This cannot be what the policing profession stands for. As a police commissioner, what are the biggest misperceptions that you want to correct about your profession? Well, I will, first of all, we don't know everything and we're not experts in everything. We are trained to do what police officers are supposed to do. Now, we are embarking on crisis intervention training to make sure that our officers uh, take on a 40-hour course to better prepare them to handle those calls where there's a mental crisis, perhaps one where weapons are involved, where it's not appropriate for a non-police person to respond to that. And so we are doing that much like many other cities. Uh, but I think there's a misconception, uh, and we're now correcting that, that police should be called for everything. We're now working to minimize what police are called for so we can be reserved for preventing crime, apprehending people who commit crime, com engaging in community policing, having the free time to engage with members of our community to build those relationships. I say this every single recruit class, let's build relationships that were never built, improve on our good relationships, and let's repair broken relationships. But that takes free time and officers have to have that time. So we're reducing the workload, reducing the burdens that are put on us by offloading some of the work to other professionals who should have been doing it all along so that we can have that time to be the police officers, the people, especially the people of Baltimore are asking for and demanding. They're saying, we wanna see our officers in the community, out of the cars, walking on foot, engaging with us, getting to know us and we wanna to get to know them. And when that happens, then information begins to flow to the police department about crimes committed in the community because there's trust and, and the belief that number one, we care enough to do something about it and we have the ability to actually do something about it. Why do you think that police shootings have, have continued to rise despite a pandemic, protests, pushes for reform? Last year was, was the most we've seen since 2015 at least. Have you thought about why this is continuing? And, you know, there's been a lot of talk and training on de-escalation, uh, but the number keeps going up. Well, I think, I think you just hit the nail on the head. I can't speak specifically about it, but generally there are variations in training. And the reasons there are variations in training and trainings is because there are variations in policy and protocols from department to department, city to city, state to state. And when there are variations in training, you know, officers will always resort back to their training when in a crisis situation. And so, yes, the focus is on de-escalation, but the focus now is also on the sanctity of life, de-escalation, the duty to intervene. Uh, all of those things we didn't used to always talk about, but we're talking about now. Departments are building it into their policies, likewise into their training. Uh, and we think we'll see a better outcome going forward, but it really is uh, it boils down to training and different departments uh, train different ways and officers 
while out there engaging, uh, will sometimes, um, you know, be tasked with a split second decision that they have to make and will not be able to think about all the alternatives to deadly force. And so I think the conversation is such now we're all talking about what are those alternatives? Can we explore them? Can we slow down and think about it? You know, there's one training that's real good. It's called I ICAT, Integrating Communications and Tactics, which talks about slowing down using space, time, distance, and communication to be able to de-escalate. Um, and so we took that training on years ago and other departments are doing so also. Uh, and so it really boils down to that, I believe. And that's more general than specific. Is it working in Baltimore? Do you have a sense that, that people well, are slowing down, that people are taking more time, that there's less shootings? I think it is. I think it is. And as I look at the number of police-involved shootings that have happened here, and here we have what we call a video release or critical incident video release policy where we release video within seven days or we can make the decision to release it within seven days. Every single case, you know, we've seen on video and I've been able to see it before speaking to the press and speaking to the community and release those videos to the community. What I have seen is that the incidents that we have had here in Baltimore, you know, we believe were necessary and was, were unavoidable to some degree. And so I have seen less of those cases where it seems like there could have been a choice or a better decision. And, and so that's where we are. We're under a federal consent decree. And every single thing we do is scrutinized by a monitoring team, the Department of Justice, and a federal judge. And so that that lead monitor is on the scene of every single police-involved shooting. And what we've seen is fewer shootings, but we've seen the ones we've had appear to have been necessary. All right. Well, you mentioned consent decrees, which is a, a you know an ongoing topic in Baltimore. You steered the New Orleans Police Department through that. Uh, what have you learned? What are the big picture takeaways from the implementation of these consent decrees about how to reform policing? Well, it is a blueprint for reform. Yeah, you said it. I had one in New Orleans. We have one here in Baltimore. We're in year four. It's a blueprint. It is a heavy lift. It is a difficult task, but it is the catalyst that turns a department around and it is the total transformation of a department. You know, before New Orleans and before Baltimore, consent decrees talked about a few things that needed to be reformed in departments. Here, it's a total transformation. It's a 100% makeover. And so it's the blueprint for that. And the outcome is a better police department that engages with its community that still enforces the law, but does it in a constitutional way, treats the community with dignity and respect, and builds relationships where information can flow where we can build better criminal cases, where we can hold people accountable because the community is a part of, number one, all of our policy creation, the community is a part of our training, and the community is a part of everything we do. And so it was about turning this department around to make it the department that people pay for, deserve, and expect. Do you think that these, so these consent decrees basically stopped during the Trump administration. The Biden administration is signaling they want to start looking at them again. In fact, they announced one for Phoenix the other day. Are they a good idea? I mean, are, are, you've had experience with them. Do they work? Are they good? 
Well, I think it has turned the New Orleans Police Department around, and it is certainly turning the Baltimore Police Department around. There are some cases where it is absolutely necessary, you know, but there are some cities where there may be a, a potential to get in front of it. And what I tell chiefs all the time, I've spoken to the chief in Phoenix recently, Louisville, Minneapolis, uh, who are all friends, and I, I talk to them regularly about what they can do to get in front of it, to build the systems of accountability that they would otherwise get in a consent decree or have to build in a consent decree, but that they can do on their own without a consent decree. And so I admonish chiefs and sheriffs and, and executives across the country to build those systems of accountability that inform them about what's happening in the department and when it does happen, what needs to be done about it and what needs to be done to those who fail to act. And so all of those systems of accountability through hiring, recruiting, hiring, training, policy building, all of those things are very, very important uh, and discipline to make sure that departments are not just performing, but are well run, well managed, well disciplined and transparent in it all. I got it. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thank you, Commissioner Michael Harrison, for speaking with me this morning. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us. You can always head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find more information about upcoming programs. I'm Tom Jackman. Thanks for watching Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.